Are you ready? You better get ready. Get ready to dive into the heart of local sports action. Broadcasting live from the heartland of Missouri. Welcome to the SEMO Scramble on SEMO ESPN. Get set. Because it's time to catch up on the latest local highlights, in-depth analysis, and interviews from the Blue Deal and beyond. Get set. Here we go. And welcome in. It's the SEMO Scramble here on SEMO ESPN Radio, 1220 AM, 93.5 FM, and online at ESPN.com. And proud supporter, Hudson Chiropractic, as part of the sponsor for this show, for the SEMO Scramble. want to give a shout-out to them and appreciate them at Hudson Chiropractic. Clay Harrell, Rusty Hendricks here in the SEMO Scramble. Clay, it was uh, it was foggy driving in for me this morning, but you told me uh, as you got here it was cleared up. So, But it should be a good day. Going to be, I think, a high of 65 degrees and a doubleheader baseball game at Kappa Hall. So good day for uh, the start of the weekend. Yeah, doubleheader at Kappa Hall. Um, I think we got some uh, semifinal basketball today, Riley Green concerts tonight here at the Show Me Center. So it's going to be uh, uh, quite the day here in Cape. Sorry about that. Uh, get that liner in. I did that on accident. But, yeah, should be a good, uh, good day today, Clay. Uh, let's start off talking a little uh, high school basketball here. Um, let's start with girls' quarterfinal. You you okay over there? I'm good. good. Just caught me off guard. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, mate. That's 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 what I get for pushing buttons. So I accidentally hit that. I'm, I apologize. But uh, let's start off with some high school basketball with the girls' quarterfinals. Uh, congrats to the Delta Lady Bobcats. They move on to state with a 61-43 win over Walnut Grove. By the way, here. In about uh, 15 minutes or so from now, we're going to talk with head coach David Hebe of the Delta uh, program and get his thoughts on going to state. So, you know, they were in state in 2022, uh, runners-up there. Um, so they have not won a state championship. Maybe this is the year, Clay. And so congrats to Delta. Got over that hurdle from a year ago, and they get the big win and able to host that game against Walnut Grove. Yeah, I mean – I heard I wasn't there. I was up in a, a Festus covering Saxony, but I heard that the crowd was just incredible there uh, at Delta last night. And uh, I guess a, a quick note on state: it's in Columbia this year. I think uh, I was talking to some people, and they thought it was in Springfield. So it is in Columbia this year, uh, which I think is a little bit of a change than years past. Um, but yeah, at Mizzou Arena. Yeah, it's been in Mizzou Arena before, but the last few years it's been Springfield. So it's kind of they've gone gone back and forth, but again, back at Mizzou Arena and. Um, they do use the Hearn Center as well, so potentially a game or two will be there. But uh, that should be a lot of fun, be able to play there at Mizzou, and it's going to be a great experience, you know, for the girls for sure. And in Class Two, we saw Portageville take on Principia. Principia, very good team. Portageville, um, you know, won that sectional, but they fall in the quarterfinal, fifty to forty-two. So it was a good run for the Portageville girls. Yeah, I mean, I think anytime you get to this point in the year, it's like obviously, uh, and we'll get into Saxony. But when you, I was talking to Chris Crawford last night after their game, and he's like, "Losing sucks. Like you want to like the competitor in you wants to move on. So I think it's tough to like see the success you had. But I think if you get to this point, like it's you know a wildly successful year. And then you mentioned it in Class 3, Saxony Lutheran uh, lost to St. Pius out of Festus 57-41. to 41. 
And you know, you mentioned in your story, your st- story is up on uh, cmoball.com, Clay. So the Crusaders, they lose Evie Caruso, Rebecca Johnson, Macy Hollis, Annie Adams, Grace Ozark, and Samantha Hope. So losing a lot from this year's team. But, uh, you know, what what was the atmosphere like there at St. Pius? Uh, you know, talking to, you mentioned uh, Coach Crawford. What was that um, experience like? And how do you, how do you, how did you feel that the Crusaders played against St. Pius? You know, the atmosphere was crazy because it's one of those gyms where it's not a huge gym. So it's like there's one section of bleachers and it's like kind of broke off into three. It was like visitor, St. Pius, and then like student section for St. Pius. So it was it was loud. I mean, I couldn't hear myself think for for most of the most of the night. And you know, it was funny because even the officials are like coming over and being like, "I can't hear anything." And it's like, no, I don't think anybody could actually hear anything in there all night. Um, Saxon came out of the gates and they put a pretty strong performance together. They went up fifteen twelve after the first quarter. They really, they kind of were, they were rotating defensively, but they were kind of living with all the three St. Pius was shooting, and they weren't hitting at a very high rate, and they really didn't hit them at a high rate all night long. Uh, Saxony's lead got to as many as like seven or eight, I think, there in the second quarter. But with a minute left, it was 21-18 Saxony, and they just kind of fell apart. Uh, St. Pius ended the half on an 8 nothing run, and Crawford said after the game that he felt like that run there in the half that sent Pius in with the five-point lead was kind of what rattled them a little bit, and then they just never really recovered. But, I mean, and they put together a good fourth quarter. They had some chances. They just didn't hit shots. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of one of those things. It is what it is, and Crawford uh, – and you can check it out in the story. He just had a lot of praise for his senior group. Obviously, for him being a first-year head coach, like he talked about how much those girls meant to him and um, things like that. Just you know, it was cool talking to him and seeing uh, you know that side of the program and things like that. So yeah, uh, it was a tough loss, but they should be incredibly proud of the season they had. Yeah, and anytime you have to go on the road, it's tough in the playoffs. And you mentioned in your story, that's exactly what Coach Crawford said. In basketball, you have to hit shots, and we just didn't do that. So you know, look, it, it's tough. Um, Nothing to hang your your head on, um, hang your head about. If, if you're Saxony, excellent season and pretty cool. You know, anytime you can win a district title, you know, make it to a sectional, make it to a quarterfinal. That's a pretty awesome accomplishment. All right, so now in districts for girls. Okay, we saw uh, finishing up for class four, five, and six in class four. Uh, I was there last night. Boy, it was an excellent game. Uh, Number two Notre Dame winning fifty nine to fifty seven over number one team Donovan. Uh, boy, that was a fun one. And I'm gonna play a little clip here, Clay, from that final, and get uh, a little clip from Kirk Beller on winning that district championship. That's now six consecutive district championships for them. Okay, and that's eighteen in girls basketball history at Notre Dame. So. They have had a run trying to get back to the state final four in which they were there from a year ago. All right, here is the final call uh, there last night. Big free throw here, three and a half left. Makes it. Inbounds, here's Reedus, two seconds at half court. And that's it. They don't get it off. Undefeated, no more. Donovan, number one, goes down. Notre Dame hangs on and gets the victory. 59-57. Notre Dame, Class 4, District 1, Champions. So big win tonight. So you win another district title. I'm sure that never gets old, Coach, but what was the feeling like? 
when you finally saw that clock hit zero and you guys were on top? The, the biggest sense of relief I've ever had in my life. <laughs> One of the biggest senses of relief to hang on. I don't have words. I mean, we win a district championship in our in our school, in our building. Against an undefeated team, Coach. Against the, I mean, one of the best basketball teams in the entire state, regardless of class. And, uh, to do that in front of our crowd at home, these kids on our team are making memories, and that's, that's why I do this. I love watching them make memories, and they're down there laughing with friends and hugging family. And <laughs> this is why I love being a Notre Dame Bulldog. All right, that was head coach Kirk Beller's reaction there after the game. So uh, they will play on Monday at Park Hills at 6 p.m. We'll have the coverage on KZIM. So big win for Notre Dame over Donovan in Class 5, District 1. So it's the semis there, Clay. Farmington 59-44 to over Sykeston. So Sykeston ends their season. Hillsboro winning 60-45 to over Cape Central. Cape Central also ends their season in Class 5. And then in Class 6, the number one seed, uh, Zhu wins over Jackson. A close game, tight game. Jackson made it tough against a very good team in Class 6, but they fall 39-36. to 36. Yeah, I mean, I was uh, fortunate enough last night to get back to the car. I was getting updates from uh, Nick McNeil uh, and Tony, and everybody's keeping me posted on that game. I was fortunate enough to get back to the car uh, on that. Basically, like, exactly the clip you played is where I, where I was able to catch it. Uh, just because of when I got done with interviews at Saxony and then get into the car. But, no, it was an uh, incredible call by you, and um, it just – you could feel the atmosphere, uh, like, through the radio. And uh, so, yeah, that was, a, that was a cool call to be able to hear at the end. And, yeah, congrats to the Bulldogs. Yeah, for Notre Dame, I mean, that game, they had a lead of seven points at one point, but neither team led by more than single digits. I mean, we never got up to double digits in the game. It was back and forth throughout. Each team had their different runs. You know, Donovan uh, got an early lead in the first quarter. Notre Dame came back, and then it was a two-point game after one. It was tied at halftime. Uh, you know, I mean, it again, back and forth all night, uh, both the defensive battle. i got to give a shout-out to Donovan and Carson Haygood. 31 points. She had eight threes. She was phenomenal from, the, from distance. I mean, she was great. Just a freshman, Ellie White, uh, double-digit points for Donovan, a freshman. And, look, uh, also in that game – um, uh, Lucius was in foul trouble, uh, so she sat on the bench for a lot of the second half, Clay. Um, but even without that, you know, Notre Dame was able to get players to step up. Eliza Barnett was able to step up, 16 points for her. Kate Rubel stepped up, 16 points for her, those two in particular. And, you know, down the stretch, Notre Dame really struggled from the outside. They were just, uh, they were two of 10 at one point. And then it was Kate Rubel in transition. She was driving. And she had a little shovel pass as her sister was just offset to the left of her. Shovel pass on the left wing. She shoveled it over to Bree. And you can see the highlight on uh, KFES 12. Bree was able to hit a three. And that extended the game at that point, I believe, to five or so. That was a huge three in the game. And Notre Dame uh, kind of took momentum there. But, boy, uh, again, they were up at, at seven for about a minute to go in the game, Clay. Donovan, after forcing a couple of turnovers, they were very aggressive on defense. Uh, they ended up also forcing a jump ball situation, which it alternating possession into their favor. So they ended up getting some buckets there late, cutting it to a one-possession game. And they had some chances, actually. You know, they had a chance at the free-throw line to tie or even take the lead there late in the game, Clay, to either force it to overtime or maybe go on top. 
but uh, some missed free throws and just some missed opportunities late for Donovan. They had their chances, but uh, Notre Dame was able to hang on. What What is the old saying? This is March. Is I mean, it's March first was yesterday, and it's kind of fitting that you start getting your your crazy Madness. basketball games. Yeah, so that was a lot of fun, and again. Um, that was district play. Sectionals will be beginning next week. All right, so in the boys' districts, let's uh, look there, Clay. In Class 4, District 1, as the boys will be playing today, um, number one seed, St. Jen, will take number two seed, Dexter, tonight at 6 p.m. In Class 5, District 1, Sykeston and Popper Bluff at 2 p.m. Those games are at North County, by the way. And then Cape Central and Farmington at 3.30. Of course, a lot of people would love to have a rematch of last year's district uh, championship between Cape and Sykes, and we'll see if that's the case. I'm starting a petition to see if it's Sykes and Cape. Can we move it to the Show Me Center? Like, can no we kidding. can we get something done with that? That'd be great. And then in Class Six, uh, Lindbergh and Jackson. It's going to be a very tough semifinal game for the Jackson Indians. That game's at 1:30 up north as well. So, uh, what do you think uh, in those districts? Who do you see coming away with with victories today? I'm going. I, you got, I'm taking Dexter. You got to ride with the the local team. Uh, then I'm taking uh, uh, Cape and Sykes, and I think we're getting a rematch. And then I'm going to go uh, on my uh, I don't know my mission to get this game moved to the Show Me Center. Um, <laughs> and then Lindbergh Jackson. I'm taking Jackson. You got to go with the local team. I think they're going to have enough offense and fill it up, and they're they're going to get a big win. Blaine Harris, cold deck, baby. Let's go. That's all. I mean, it's a big enough offensive punch. I'm taking the Indians. All right, love to see that. So good luck to all of our local teams in district play today, but also quarterfinal games going on in classes one through three, Clay. In class one, Richland will take on Chadwick. Boy, Chadwick is a very good team in class one. That'll be a 5 p.m. game. That's at uh, at Three Rivers, okay? At Three Rivers College, they're playing there. That'll be fun. Again, at 5 p.m., uh, hopefully folks can maybe check that one out. Yeah, I think um... – I'm taking Richland. You're not going to ever get me to pick against the locals. Like, I don't, well, I mean, if there's two local teams, I'm going to, you know, pick, like, who I think is actually going to win. But I don't care if, if Richland was playing the 98 or whatever, the Bulls that went 72 and 10. I'm always taking the local team here, Rusty. So go go Richland. Tucker Hughes, let's go. And I misspoke. I'm sorry. That uh, Richland-Chadwick game is not at Three Rivers. Actually, in Class 2, Puxico and South Pym is at Three Rivers. So excuse me. But Puxico again in Class 2 against South Pym. That's at 1 p.m. And that game is at Three Rivers. So uh, Puxico has not been to state since, I think, 58, 1958, Clay. Um, so the, the incredible run that they have been on. They hadn't won a district title since, I believe, 07. And then doing it again this year. Uh, pretty special what they've been able to do. And the thing is, for Puxico, they're a pretty young team. Just when I was a wee lad, they've wee been lad. to state. So uh, I'm just kidding. I was born in 2000. Um <laughs> But, uh, no, I, I mean, they got a big win over St. Vincent. Again, like, they had to go on the road to do that. And kind of like you said, it's tough going on the road in the playoffs, and now you're going neutral site. I think Puxico keeps it rolling here this afternoon. Then New Madrid County Central in Class 3 versus Kingston. That's at 4 p.m. Uh, look, I don't want to get into necessarily what happened in sectionals with Charleston. Notre, or New Madrid is able to get the victory there. Obviously, a lot of uh, talk about that game and some of the things that went on, but New Madrid, um, we'll see what if they can overcome and, and you know find a way to get a win, get back to state as well against a very good Kingston team. That should be fun up north. Yeah, I think has that game gotten moved like twice now, like to different locations. I think I it's believe a, that's at Park Hills. Park Hills. So I know it was originally going to be at obviously Kingston. They, then they went to West County yeah. High School and then ended up moving it to Park Hill. So yeah, it's been moved a few different times now. So. 
Park Hills, I do believe, is the host for today at 4 p.m. with New Madrid. You know, I don't envy the people that are uh, in charge of finding out where you're going to play because <laughs> that is not a job that I would like to have. Um, but, no, I mean, I think New Madrid keeps it rolling. It, it feels like that they're just on a crash course to get back to the, the state title game, and I think today is another step in that, and I think they'll get it done. So good luck to the Eagles. We'll see if they can uh, find a way to get the win here today. All right, so that's a look at uh, our high school basketball rundown for playoff time. We're going to continue the the talk, though, coming up next. We're going to talk with head basketball coach David Hebe of Delta Lady Bobcats. And as they are going on to state, they move on trying to win a state title. We'll see if they can do it as they will face off against Northeast Cairo uh, March 6th at 6 p.m., in Columbia. So we'll talk to head coach David Heap next, right here on the SEMO Scramble. Welcome back in. It's the SEMO Scramble here on SEMO ESPN Radio. That's 1220 AM, 93.5 FM, and online at SEMO ESPN Com. Clay Harrell of the Southeast Missourian, Rusty Hendricks, and we're happy to be joined here on our hotline by head coach David Hebe of the Delta Girls. And how about that? The Delta Girls with a big victory over Walnut Grove last night at home, and they're headed to state. So, Coach, i got to ask, what was the atmosphere like last night at Delta? Take us through that game and how you guys were able to come out on top. Yeah, the atmosphere was incredible. Uh, Walnut Grove brought a huge crowd, and then of course we had a, a large local gathering too. And uh, I mean, it was it was sold out probably 30 minutes before the game even started, and uh, just one of the best uh, atmospheres I've ever been in. You know, you don't get a chance to clinch a quarterfinal on your home court. This is the first year getting to do stuff like this. So, uh, you know, I played big games in front of a home crowd before, but you never played with that much at stake, and so. Uh, it was really neat, uh, just the crowd and the whole thing. And the way the game ended, you know, we basically ran the last minute of the clock out and they let us just stand there. And so it was like a minute-long standing ovation. It was really neat. But, uh, no, we came out early. We jumped on them in the first quarter, and it looked like we were just going to run away from them. We played a great first quarter. And then in the second quarter, we got in major foul trouble and kind of let them crawl back in the game. Uh, I think we were up five, six, seven at halftime, something like that. And then the third quarter – uh, Jade Berry came back in the game and just absolutely took the game over. Um, we pulled away, got you know, got a big lead, and in the fourth quarter, we just kind of ran the clock out. Coach, uh, you know, you told Cole Lee of the Southeast Missourian uh, just kind of about a lesson you learned in not overcoaching. For those who haven't had a chance to go and read that story yet, can you tell uh, the story that you learned from a local legend? Yeah, I played for Ronnie Cookson growing up uh, at Scott County Central, and uh, I, I just love Coach Cookson. Uh, you know, he used to take me home from practice every day after practice, and, uh, you know, he'd drive that truck real slow and drop me off in the driveway, and he'd tell these stories and, and all these things. We were really, really close. And uh, then when I started coaching, I lived in Morley. He lived in Morley, and uh, I can't even count how many nights we'd be at his kitchen table uh, Coach Cookson would uh, drink sweet tea and dip chocolate chip cookies in the sweet tea, <laughs> things like that. I mean, we would just sit at his kitchen table and talk basketball. And he told me when I was a young coach that the biggest mistake that he sees coaches make is they try to overcoach. They try to come up with this game plan, and they're going to trick the other guy or whatever. And 
uh, he said, that, you know, that's the biggest mistake he sees guys make. And so I've always remembered him saying that. And I just try to come up with a real simple game plan for the kids. I'll watch hours and hours and hours of film and have pages and pages and pages of notes. But then I'll try to condense that down to something that just a few bullet points. Like, hey, guys, we, we're going to go with uh, press one instead of press two. And we're going to run this on offense if it's a man and this on offense if it's a zone. Just something real simple to where they don't have to think, okay, what are we doing? They just go execute. And I thought they did a phenomenal job of that last night for three of the quarters of the game. You know, the one quarter we had to kind of play uh, tread and water there because we were in foul trouble. But, uh, yeah, that was, that was one of the many lessons that I learned from Coach Cookson. Um, you know, and I, I would say the vast majority of the things I do are things that I learned from him either as a player or a lot of nights sitting at his kitchen table drinking sweet tea as a young coach. <laughs> I love sweet tea, Coach. Hey, yeah, uh yeah. What is that it factor with this team? Because they just seem like they have it. Well, uh, it's just Chris Nichols and I, my assistant, we were talking about this just before I came on here. I said, you know, the good team, if you have a good team, you've got kids on that team that are willing to do the dirty work. But on a really great team, everybody on that team is doing the dirty work. And that is the biggest difference between last year and this year. I mean, last year we had a really good team, and it's not a knock against any of the kids on that team, but it's just we're a year older, we're a year stronger, we're a year tougher. And when you – you know, we lost in the quarterfinals by two, and honest to God, we got out toughed. We did. I mean, that team pushed us around. Uh, They were more physical than us. Uh, We settled for a lot of three-point shots when we should have drove to the basket. And we just kind of made a vow at the end of that season and going into our summer basketball program, we're never going to get beat for that reason again. You know, we might lose because everybody fouled out or we might lose because some kid on the other team got hot. But we're not going to get beat because you pushed us around and we're not going to get beat because we weren't tough enough to just take it in the teeth of the defense. And so, um, you know, that that's kind of their mindset. They're just a really, really, really tough and they're really, really, really smart. Coach, you know, you know, looking ahead now to uh, the Final Four matchup, Meadville was ranked number one. They lost last night in the quarters to Northeast Cairo. I know, you know, you all obviously played last night. So, if what can you tell us, if anything, about Northeast Cairo and kind of what you all might expect from that game here next week? Well, first of all, that game was not an upset. It might have been in the polls and all those kind of things. Meadville was a fantastic team. They won fifty nine games in a row. They won a state title last year, and they hadn't lost a game all year until last night. So. They were a fantastic team, but Cairo was a Class Two school last year, and they lost in the quarterfinals to Tipton. They were 26-4 and last year, lost to Tipton, who won the 2A state title, and then dropped down to Class One this year. And uh, they are a really talented team. They got a 6'3 girl. They got another big girl inside. Uh, they got a couple of really, really good guards. They go seven or eight deep. I mean, you know, from just a physical talent standpoint, I would say they're probably the most talented team in in Class 1. So, uh, you know, them going in there and beating Meadville last night, you know, was was an upset to some people, but it wasn't a shock, I don't think, to anybody. Talking things over with head coach David Heeb of the Delta Girls basketball program. Coach, it's been a tough road back to state, but you made it back to where, you know, there's some unfinished business, 2022 state runner-up. What's the message to your team, your town and community to finish this one off, come away with a championship next week? Well, all year long, our motto has just been to play like Delta. You know, we, we have a very 
unique style of play. Uh, some people will press for a little while. We press like it's a religious belief. You know, we just press because we just think it's the way you should play basketball. And we run on every possession. You know, some people will run where there's an opportunity or they'll run against a lesser opponent. We're pressing and running no matter what. And uh, we, we try to do that the whole time and just destroy you rebounding the ball. That, that's always been my philosophy. My whole coaching career is those three things. And so uh, this group has just embraced that. Now the other team, because we do play, you know, such a frenetic style, usually we're playing against somebody who's trying to play keep away or something like that. And so, you know, that's, that's been my motto to them all years. Just play like Delta. Play like we play. And somewhere in the course of that, that game, you know, they're just going to break down. They cannot play this pace uh, the entire game. They've never seen anything like you. And I don't mean that that we're the best team or anything like that. But just they've never played a style like this. They can watch it on film. They can think they know what's coming. But somewhere in the second or third quarter, basketball is just not fun anymore when you're playing us. It's just not fun. You can't breathe. Your legs hurt. You know, we take you to a place of being tired that you've never been. And so that's what I want those girls to go to Columbia and do is, you know, the people around the state that have never seen us play, that see our scores and, you know, wonder how do we do this, go up there and show them, you know. And so that's that's what I want for these kids. I mean, just besides obviously winning the state title, I want them to go up there and show everybody how we can really play. Well, Coach, congrats again on the win and, and making it to state. Let's finish it off. Let's get the job done and finish it off here next week. So congrats, Coach, and appreciate your time this morning. Good luck going forward. Thank you, guys. All right. That is Head Coach David Heeb here on the SEMO Scramble. Appreciate him. And, boy, uh, Delta, you know, it's not a big town, right? I think uh, if you look at the, the population sign, there's only about four or 500 on that sign, Clay. But, boy, I, I bet you there's going to be. Four or five hundred people in Columbia next week to cheer on Delta. So again, they haven't won a state championship before, and hopefully they can get it done. Come out on top should be fun, and Coach Heeb's done an excellent job. Yeah, there's going to be four or five hundred people, and I bet it's going to sound like four or five thousand people because they get loud, um, and the stakes are you know the highest they've been this season. So it'll be a fun one next week at Mizzou Arena. All right, good luck to Delta. All right, we're going to switch gears a little bit, Clay. We're going to talk a little football. So this week, uh, the NFL Combine is going on in Indianapolis. It's kind of an annual thing. So all the top uh, players in different positions, they go through all the measurables. You know, they, they do the, the sprints, the 40-yard dash. They do the, uh, the weight room. They do the interviews and talk to all the coaches and, and media members and, you know, go through their different drills. So... Going through all that and trying to determine, all right, who's the top draft picks, who's maybe some unsung heroes, things like that. One guy that is there locally, Ryan Flournoy, okay, played at SEMO, and he is at the NFL Draft Combine, and he's a guy that has an opportunity to get drafted. And we're going to talk about him coming up next. We're talking with actually Andy Phillips. Andy Phillips, he is a former football player for both in college and also part of the uh, Packers organization in the NFL. He is a contributor to the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's a writer for them, and he's also an insider for the NFL draft. So talk with Andy Phillips coming up next. I'm excited about this interview, Clay, and that should be fun. So stay with us here in the SEMO Scramble. 
Welcome back in. It's the SEMO Scramble here on SEMO ESPN Radio. That is 1220 AM, 93.5 FM, and online at com. Clay Harrell, the Southeast Missourian newspaper. I'm Rusty Hendricks, and we are happy to be joined here on our hotline with Andy Phillips. He is the author of bestseller book, Round Zero, Inside the NFL Draft. He is also a formal, former Central Michigan football player, so Fire Up Chips, and then a former lineman for the Green Bay Packers organization. He's a writer for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. You can follow him on Twitter slash X at A-P-H-I-L-66. So, wow, loaded uh, there is Andy Phillips, and appreciate his time. So, first of all, thanks so much for talking to us. So, before we go any further, let's uh, start discussing your book, Round Zero, Inside the NFL Draft. Again, it is a inside look into the NFL draft, behind-the-scenes perspectives, insights, and stories. So what can you know readers learn from this book, and how did your experience shape the theme of this book as well? Yeah, well, thanks for having me, guys. Uh, you know, Round Zero is essentially the inner workings that take place from January until that first pick. And the reason I wanted to go into this was because I went through the process in 2015 and I felt that my story was fairly unique for being a guy who ended up being undrafted. And I thought, what are the real conversations taking place? What are the stories from the people who are more heavily involved and people are more interested in them, like the guys who are you know, drafted first round, guys who are drafted fourth round, uh, the agents, the coaches, the GMs, everything that is taking place that maybe the world doesn't really know is happening behind closed doors. Because I remember having questions after mine. I had a call from the Chicago Bears offensive line coach an hour before the first round started about how great of a weekend it was going to be for me. Now, I knew it wasn't going to go in the first round, but I thought, well, shoot, day three, the Bears do six-round picks. You know, maybe one's on me. Well, after the draft, they wanted nothing to do with me, even as a free agent. I always wondered, where is the miscommunication inside the organization? Because I'm sure he wouldn't have wasted his time calling me an hour before the first round started if they wanted absolutely nothing to do with me. So it always had me wondering. I decided, let's, let's, let's get to the bottom of this. Now, unfortunately, Dave Magazoo had passed away before the book came out, so I didn't get a chance to talk to him. However, great insights from general managers, coaches, agents, and players. And I think the thing that I took away most from it is it's, fairly, it's a fairly unique process per organization, per coaching staff from that side. I think Bill Polian and Ron Wolf. Hall of Fame GMs had a clear way that they went about doing things. It was precise. The entire entire organization knew how to do it. So on draft day, there was no banging tables, no yelling about we need to draft this guy or that guy. Everything was just follow the board because all the work, all the haze in the barn. And I think that was the fascinating part was to see the structure and how clear and precise it was during that period. So the draft weekend is actually fairly stress-free for these guys while all the fans across the country are stressing and expecting to to see the draft day, Kevin Costner, you know, meetings. It's really nothing like that. You know, Andy, you've been, you know, studying this year's draft, you know, closely from kind of the work you've done and the guys that you've looked at. Are there any names that have jumped off the board at you, you know, so far, maybe here's the draft approaches here in about a month. Yeah. You know, I'll I'll tell you, I'm going to give you three guys that are are jumping one to me and and they're all going to be in the first or second round neighborhood. But I'm going to give you why they're popping to me. One's Roma Dunes, they're the receiver from Washington. He might be the best receiver I've scouted in the, in the past four years. And uh, doing the film study and everything on these guys, 
I think he's actually I, – I, to me, it's pick your poison between him and Marvin Harrison Jr., but I like Rome a hair better because I think you can do a little bit more with him. I think the one area you look at that Rome Dunze, in my opinion, can do better than Marvin Harrison Jr. is when in doubt, your offense is struggling, you can't run the ball uh, you know, a yard, and you need to get some cheap yards. You need to get yourself in second and favorable distances. I need to run a quick smoke screen, just get the ball in my playmaker's hands. Rome has some shape to him. He's got a thick lower body, but he's got enough wiggle that he finds ways to get yards on those plays where Marvin Harrison is more linear. Marvin Harrison is more, you know, create the player I'm mad in and runs the exact route how it should exactly be run. There's not as much shake to him, which is okay. He's still going to probably be a Pro Bowl caliber player, and that's fine. But I just think there's a little more that Rome does. And there's not much that Marvin does that I can say he definitely does better than Rome. Rome's the complete package. I'm excited that he's testing today. I'm excited that he's going through the process today in Indy because I think he's going to showcase what I see on film. Another guy in the Missouri area is Darius Robinson. I'm a huge fan of what I see on film, the D lineman from Missouri, because I think he's a chess piece. He's a guy that has played, he played three years at D tackle at Mizzou. Then they popped him out the defensive end this year where he really did shine. He shined at defensive end because he's that 6'5", 287 pounder with athleticism, with explosion, with some twitch. But he's a guy that I think any coach is going to look at. And he's a guy that maybe came into the process, you know, pre-senior bowl, came into the process, end of the first, early second round projection, and I would not be shocked if we see him go in that top 15 because I think every defensive coordinator is going to look at this kid and go, we can play him wherever we need. And that is a unique trait. And then the other guy, the guy who I think really helped himself yesterday, uh, and, that, and that's Max Melton, the defensive back, the corner out of Rutgers. Got the size, elite athleticism. Uh, I think he ran 4-3-9, I believe it was. And you watch the film, and I, you, know, you go watch the Ohio State game, and he, he lines up across from Marvin quite a bit that game. His closing speed's incredible. He's also a guy that I think is physical enough that if you wanted to put him at nickel, he can come inside, he can jam receivers, he can play in the run game, you can run nickel blitzes with him. He's a unique, one of those unique players that probably came into this process going anywhere second, maybe third round. I think he's a guy that if a team really doesn't want to risk him getting to the day two, maybe sneaks and grabs him late first round now after uh, what he put on display yesterday. Talking things over once again with Andy Phillips. And again, he's the author of the bestseller book, Round Zero, Inside the NFL Draft. And Andy, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on is locally a little flavor. Ryan Flonoy, who just finished his second season as a wide receiver for SEMO, Southeast Missouri University. It's an FCS program. So part of the, again, we wanted to get your thoughts on him. I kind of had you do a little homework, some film work on him and get his measurables. So, um do you believe that he's a guy that could be drafted? You know, Simo has never had anybody drafted above the sixth round, but where do you think his talents com- are, you know, comparable here to the NFL? Yeah, first off, watching him play was fun because he's it's very clear his identity on the football field, and it's, he knows exactly what he needs to do. He knows exactly how to get it done. He's physical at the point of, of contact, whether it be when he's getting pressed, whether it be at the catch point. 6'2", 200 pounds, does a really, really nice job with spatial awareness as well, which is huge. You have to be able to do that, especially because if you're going to talk about a, a weakness form that shows up is he's not, he doesn't separate at an elite level, which means a lot of the throws could be contested at the next level. And that's where he's just going to have to show when he gets into a training camp 
his ability to a take take the coaching, learn some more skills to separate at the top of these routes, or b just understand that hey, I might have some tighter windows like a DeAndre Hopkins has, but I'm coming down with these balls more times than not. It gives the quarterback confidence to get it to him. When I when I watch him though, I definitely see a guy that is going to be right there at the end of training camp fighting for a roster spot, and that's a good thing. You got to put yourself in a position uh, to be in that conversation because uh, unless he comes out today and maybe surprises people and pops off, you know, a four four one, I think a lot of people would expect him to be in kind of that mid four fives based on the film. That's what I see when I watch the film. Is he's probably going to be a four five two four five five type of player. Unless he surprises with that, if he runs, comes in and runs with, you know, the film tells us, my guess is he is one of those sixth, seventh round candidates that's going to be end up in there fighting for a roster spot. And and frankly, when I watch him, I kind of see a little bit of two guys that are in the NFL right now making making plays, and that's either Noah Brown with the Texans, who, uh, you know, he's a 600 yard guy, C.J. Stroud. You know, there's going to be games when Robert Wood, or sorry, uh, uh, Collins and uh, Tank Dell would be double covered and next you know Noah Brown has seven eight catches or then you go to even in the Super Bowl you got a guy like Juwan Jennings similar profiles in that 6'2 200 215 pound range that aren't elite separators but when they're the number three option on an offense they seem to get a lot of man coverage or find space in the zones and they're there when the plays need to be made if he can find himself a place that allows him to be him physical willing blocker at the point of the, uh, uh, at the catch point, being able to come down with those 50-50 balls at a 75-25% clip, he can find himself in this league for a long time, just like the two guys I just mentioned, because the physical profile is there. You know, Andy, switching gears a little bit away from the draft, the Chiefs just won their second straight Super Bowl last month. Uh, they have probably the best quarterback in the league. You could argue maybe even the best head coach in the league. Obviously, you know, winning three straight Super Bowls is going to be a tall mountain to climb. What do you think that their offseason needs to look like? Obviously, I think the big talk is at the receiver position. But from your perspective, what do you think the offseason needs to look like for the Chiefs to get back to the mountaintop next year? Yeah, listen, it kind of feels like where the Patriots were after they won three uh, with Brady early on in his career. They won that third one, and I think everybody pretty much said, can't count them out. They're going to be back. It's kind of like death taxes, Patriots. And that was even with them not getting to another or winning another one for 10 years. They didn't win another one for a decade. But everyone, every offseason said, oh, still the Patriots, still have Brady, still have Beltrick, they're good. But that's exactly where we're at now in the Mahomes-Reed era. It, I think the big focus, though, is this. You paid Mahomes the money. You're going to keep Travis and keep him you know, healthy with, with money as well. I think part of that is, Pat, we're paying you the money. You have to make things around you better. I think the focus is really keeping – if you can manage to keep Chris Jones and Snead on the other side of the ball, I have no reason to believe why anybody else should even be considered nearly a favorite outside the Chiefs. I think keeping those two and keeping that defense with Spags intact would be the biggest thing. Now, odds are they don't keep both, right, because they're both going to acquire top dollar. My guess is they'll prioritize Chris Jones. Sounds like they've already kind of given Snead a little permission to, you know, while you're on the tag, if you, you and your agent want to see what else is out there, potential trade options. Maybe. So my guess is Need could very easily end up elsewhere and Chris Jones stays. And if that's the case, I still think the Chiefs are the favorite. There's no reason to think otherwise. Rasheed Rice, he was actually a guy that last year on my, my rankings, uh, you know, pre-draft rankings, I actually had a first-round grade on him. And I was in Kansas City for the draft, and I remember as soon as he went to the Chiefs, I'm like, this is exactly the track that I said. Because I compared him to Devontae Adams coming out of Fair State. And I said, 
similar competition, but he showed the same skill set that Devonta showed at Fair or at Fresno. I apologize at Fresno State. And I said, if she ends up in a situation that similar to what uh, you know Devonta ended up with with Aaron Rodgers, he's going to shine early. And of course, he goes to Patrick Mahomes, and it kind of feels like his trajectory could end up being Devonta Adams level if he keeps putting in the work in the offseason. So I'm not sure they have to address the receiver position as much as people may think. All right, again, talking things over with Andy Phillips and your writer, contributor for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The Hall of Fame, uh, you know, recipients have already come and gone for this year. But in my opinion, Andy, you know, I, I grew up and I was closely watching, of course, Missouri native, uh, the show on turf there in St. Louis. And, and, of course, there's already been a number of guys already get in. Orlando Pace, Kurt Warner, Marshall Falk, you know, Isaac Bruce. But another guy, in my opinion, that should be in the Hall of Fame that's been passed up is Torrey Holt. Do you agree with that, number one? Or the number two, why does he continue to get passed up? Yeah, I do agree. And I was I was similar. I'm of the age where the greatest show on turf was, you know, very much in my memory and watching them. And, you know, it's funny when you're – I often tell my wife, sometimes paralysis by analysis, when you get to the point like we are, you know, us right now, it's like we think we know so much about football, we study it so much, that sometimes you can overthink the obvious, right? So sometimes – I can bounce something off my wife when we're, like, say, picking a DraftKings team and I'm overanalyzing a matchup. She's like, well, why would you do that? This guy stinks. Like, and it's just like it's overanalyzing. I mean, you know what? You're probably right. I'm overthinking this. I remember being a kid, and I watched those teams closely because they were on all the time. This is pre-red zone. And I remember thinking, wow, this, you know, this Tory Holt guy is better than Isaac Bruce. I just remember thinking that. Of the two, I thought the better player. Now, I know career yards is one thing. But I thought the better player, while they were both there in their primes, was Torrey Holt. And then you look at the amount of years he had in a row with 1,300-plus yards. His resume, a Super Bowl win, another appearance, the amount of yards he had, everything about him screams Hall of Famer. And I'm not sure why he hasn't been. I'll say this. There was a logjam of receivers there for a little bit. And I think now that Andre Johnson got through, hopefully that kind of starts opening the door back up for the likes of a Torrey Holt, who will get in eventually. There's guys with his resume get in. It's just back maybe 10, 15 years ago when there wasn't that logjam of receivers, the guys were getting in first, second, third tries. We're now Tories just had to wait a little bit because that's the difference between this and say the, the major league, you know, the baseball hall of fame where everyone votes, you get a percentage, you're in, you're in, you're out, you're out. This is different when you have that max of, of five guys going in uh, every year. So I think Tory gets in. He absolutely is a hall of fame player. And I think it's, it's to me, it's more of a matter of when than if. All right, so Andy Phillips, and again, appreciate the conversation, the insight here this morning, and your time as well. Again, author of bestseller book, Round Zero, Inside the NFL Draft. I know you can go on Amazon, get that, go to Barnes & Noble. Um, so, again, good price as well. So uh, go check that out. Again, Round Zero, Inside the NFL Draft. And, Andy, we'll be following your coverage from the Combine and then the NFL Draft to come. And, uh, and you know, just looking forward to some of your stories as well on uh, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So appreciate the time this morning, and uh, thanks so much for talking to us. Much appreciated, guys. Uh, thanks for, thanks for the, the time and the work. All right. Have a good one, man. Do. All right. That was, again, Andy Phillips. Appreciate his time for talking to us. Some good insight there, um, Clay. And, you know, going back to Ryan Flournoy and what he was able to you know talk about him, you know, again, I think I agree with that. I think he's a guy that, you know, He's not going to be drafted in the first, you know, first day. You know, he's he's going to be a late round guy. Maybe, you know, maybe he could be undrafted. 
but he deserves a chance, and he is good enough to play in the NFL. And I'm excited to see what he can do. I hope that maybe there's some measurables that jump out here from this weekend. I believe today is the big day for wide receivers as far as uh, what they do at the Combine. So hopefully that you know some things can jump out, and hopefully some teams look into him and, and like what they see. Yeah, I mean, it's, it'll be a big day, like uh, Andy said. So a lot to check out today and what's already a, a pretty busy day here uh, in the area. So I will play this real quick. This was uh, from the Combine, and it was an interview done, and Maddox Murphy, who's uh, from the area, and she was there um, talking with um, Ryan Flournoy and get his thoughts on how SEMO football molded him. What was your experience at SEMO kind of prepared you for being here today? Um, my experience has been great. Um, a lot of great people, a lot of fantastic um, coaching, a lot of fantastic players there. Um, the love I have for SEMO is like truly a match because they molded me into a better man, not just a better football player. So, again, that's his thoughts. Again, Ryan Flournoy on SEMO. We'll talk more SEMO athletics coming up. We'll take a break. Be right back. There's a big uh, walk-off winner in SEMO baseball yesterday. We'll talk about that coming up next on the SEMO Scramble. Josh Cameron. Current ball drilled. Deep right center. Did he get it? Did he get it? This game is over. Walk-off, Yahtzee on the first pitch. Cameron walks it off, and the Red Hawks celebrate at home plate. Wow, a majestic game-ending home run. That's how it sounded yesterday as the Red Hawks baseball team with a walk-off winner, 6-5 to five at Kapaha. Over Toledo, Josh Cameron with the heroics. So a big walk-off home run there. And he's been scuffling a little bit, Clay, but good to see him get a big one there and get it done with a walk-off. It's always fun when you can get a walk-off. If I'm opposing pitchers, I'm probably a little concerned for the rest of the weekend to see him you know, get going a little bit like that. That kind of feels like the, the swing that can jumpstart a big run for him. So talking things over here, Clay Harrell, Rusty Hendricks on the SEMO scramble. So SEMO baseball continues with a doubleheader today at Hall against Toledo. Uh, they're a fun team to watch, Clay. They've kind of been, I don't know if up and down is the right way to say it, but you know, we've seen some good wins this year over Murray State, over Missouri. Uh, or I'm sorry, over Missouri as well. Um, you know, they lost a three out of four, though, against St. Thomas in a frustrating weekend last weekend, but... Uh, we'll see how they fare um, for a whole series here against Toledo at home. But, again, they're a fun team to watch, and I do expect some good things from them this year. Yeah, I, I think that St. Thomas series probably left a, a bad taste in anybody's mouth, really, that supports the program, even the players in the program. But it's like you see the way that they took it to Mizzou uh, earlier this week. I feel like that's more the team that you're probably going to see for a lot of this year. And uh, they were able to to get a big win yesterday over Toledo. And it's like, okay, like, the St. Thomas series, at the end of the day, like in two months, are you going to look at that? Or not two months, I guess in, well, yeah, I guess two months. You can look at that and say, was that an outlier or was that kind of the sign of things to come? And it's, you know, 
I think it's the outlier. I, I don't think that really it's going to end up being that kind of year. I mean, you kind of saw the way they competed at DBU, a team that's ranked in the top 25. Like, that's more the team you're going to see. Um, so, yeah, I think the St. Thomas thing was just an outlier, and I think they continue their uh, their success here today uh, in the doubleheader against Toledo. Got my SEMO baseball pullover on today, my SEMO hat. So I'm not just your SEMO hat, your SEMO advent. That's right. Themed hat. We got to right. make sure we get that out there. <laughs> That's right. SEMO uh, basketball, big games today. Look, it's the final game for the SEMO men at Southern Indiana Clay, already eliminated from the OVC tournament. It's been a frustrating year, no doubt, but there has been some positive signs from some of the young players, and you definitely see the potential of what the SEMO men could be, but. This is a huge offseason for Coach Brad Korn and his staff, but you would love to go out on a high note. Look, Southern Indiana is a very good program for both the men and the women, so it's not going to be an easy game once again today. But you'd like to see them be competitive, at least play well. And, you look, we saw um, Josh Early injured in that last game on Thursday night, so unlikely that he will play here today. But, again, um, you want to see the men go out and play well in their last game. Look, I mean, it's still like this is a young team, so you're not really like you don't want to just go out and, you know, play bad basketball. You're still looking for building blocks even to get into the, the off-season workouts and things like that. So, like, you're still wanting to go out there and continue to build on some of the promising things you have seen. I know the record and, and people have been frustrated with that, but, like, this is a team that I think is talented. It's just a matter of, you know, getting some more experience with their belt and, and putting it all together, and today's another step in that. Like, you just got to go out and continue to build and play good basketball, and yeah, I know it's it's tough to go out and get up for a game where it's like you have nothing to play for, but there is still, I think, a lot to, to improve on and a lot to learn here heading into the offseason workouts. So the SEMO women will be playing first. They play at 5, the men to follow. Again, both of those games can be heard on Real Rock 99.3. By the way, SEMO baseball can be heard on SEMO ESPN right here on these airwaves today as well. I believe they, they kick off at noon uh for the first pitch here today so but the SEMO women clay currently they're tied for the final spot to get into the ovc tournament in eight okay in the standings they play southern indiana who is the top team in the conference and southern indiana already wrapped up that number one seed so look obviously it's a tall task today for them they may need a little help um games to watch today and teams to watch as lindenwood who is a game behind and then Tennessee State, who is currently tied with them. Now, SEMO does have the, the tiebreaker, okay? They would win the tiebreaker if that would be the case. But a game to watch today, UT Martin, who hosts Tennessee State. So we'll be uh, rooting for the Rubles and, you know, UT Martin here against Tennessee State, and we'll see if SEMO can find a way into the tournament. So if I remember correctly about the OVC, the, the top two seeds get a double bye, correct? The top seed gets a double bye? Yes, they get a bye, and you know, for teams so, like, like the Red Hawks getting in, they would have to win, like the men did last year, four, four. games in four days. So my question, though, is like Southern Indiana, SEMO wouldn't play, it wouldn't be a 1-8, correct, in, in, to start the OVC tournament? Correct. So that was, my point was going to be is if, if you go into this, obviously a 5 o'clock tip, the Tennessee State game will be over. It's like if Tennessee State loses, do you just kind of like, not break out everything you got in your bag. You know what I mean? Like because you're you're probably going to be seeing Southern Indiana at some point in the tournament if you go on a little run. So it's like do you kind of maybe if Tennessee State loses. I mean, no, I don't think no. Coach Patterson's you, thinking like that. You, I'm probably overthinking it. Like Andy was just talking about. You don't want to do that, but <laughs> you know, no, you want to you want to be playing your best basketball here going into the tournament. That's fair. And nothing is given too. I mean, Leonard Wood they could potentially win. 
Um, they're game behind, but they could still win uh, here today as well. So you, you want to leave it all out there, give it all you got today. Find a, you know, if you can try to sneak a win, secure that spot, and you know get some momentum going into the tournament. Look, you know, for Southern Indiana, I don't know. Maybe they won't play some of their top players. Maybe they could rest some of them. I don't know, um, but I would expect uh, you know most of their starters to get quality minutes at least early in this game. But uh, again, for Semo, hopefully they can find a way to to get into the tournament. We'd love to see them. A play, you know, going forward. Ultimately, Rusty, that just proves while I'm in here, um, why I'm in here, you know, on the radio and the coaches are the ones getting paid the coaches' bucks because <laughs> that was obviously not a great idea. I get, I understand your line of thinking, so I, I do get that. Uh, it was announced uh, for SEMO football, the Red Hawks will open up their fall season in Montgomery, Alabama for the FCS 10th annual FCS kick kickoff against North Alabama, so that'll be a fun way Again, they, they pretty much start the season for everybody, and they get that done with the kickoff uh, to start the season in Montgomery, Alabama, so that's pretty cool. So, Clay, fun show today, and we'll be keeping an eye on the high school basketball, obviously SEMO sports this weekend as well. What do you got going on? Man, I am uh, actually today about to, when we get done here, going to work on a feature on a Landry Blue uh, advanced grad, played a couple years at uh, Mineral Area Volleyball. She signed with SEMO volleyball this week so i got a story coming on that and then um i gotta start working on some spring sports previews it's believe it or not wow. in the, in the know, midst right? of all this chaos spring sports are right around the corner so uh yeah getting that done and then uh i will be only with you next week momentarily for a for a quick call in and um i will be out in new york city yeah you're gonna be seeing uh, the st louis blues as a trade deadline on friday we're gonna be talking with alex ferrario of 101 espn out of st louis get his thoughts on the aftermath of the nhl trade deadline so that's next week uh st louis cardinals still spring training uh yadier molina looks like he's gonna be in camp did for you, did one you see, week i know we have to go did you see the picture of him wearing cub stuff I did see that. I it's because son... I don't care. It's still crazy. That is the like I don't care. That is the biggest form of betrayal I've ever seen. Oh come on! I don't care, dude. If my like, I think it's like his nephew or whatever. I don't care if my nephew played like if I. Okay, I'm not Yadier <laughs> Molina. Let's make this very clear. But if I played for the Cardinals and the Cubs are my rival, I don't care, man. Like I'll put on blue, but I'm not putting on a Cubs logo. That is. Do we know, know for sure it wasn't Photoshop? It was not photo. I'm it could have been. I'm just. Saying. It's fine. Who cares? Betrayal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, that's Clay Harrell. I'm Rusty Hendricks. It's time to go here on the CMO Scramble. Uh, folks, hope you enjoyed it here today. Have a good weekend, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to the CMO Scramble on CMO ESPN. You've been listening to the CMO Scramble on CMO ESPN. Tune in every Saturday morning from 9 to 10 for a dash of hometown pride right here on the CMO Scramble. Yes, don't miss the latest news, stories, and stories that matter most to local sports enthusiasts. From the Blue Hill and beyond. Right here on CMO ESPN, 1220 AM, 93.5 FM, the CMO ESPN app, and at CMOESPN.com.